Well, good morning. I greet you in the name. We're going to see if we can move that all the way as far forward without rolling it off the stage. Now, I greet you in the name of Jesus, our soon returning King, and I must tell you how excited I am to be here with you this morning, how I've looked forward to this, even as we've had a great weekend of Bible prophecy and teaching in our conference, our first annual conference right here up the road in Frankfurt. And as I share that, I have to tell you that you here in Kentucky and at Nineveh can be very pleased to know that per capita, we represent an even greater support for lamb and lion ministry than the folks in Texas where it is founded and, and headquartered still to this day. As a matter of fact, we had a number of our trustees there yesterday three of whom now are from Kentucky, and I've told Dr. Reagan, I said, I think we may just have to move our headquarters here to the promised land east because uh, truly we are beginning to represent a strong base of support and have for a long time. Brother Terry has been very generous with his encouragement. I know he preaches the prophetic word of God, and you all have had Dr. Reagan here before, and so he does send greeting this morning. As a matter of fact, thinking about our prophecy conference, two uh, little things that happened. I, I was excited to be there, very enthusiastic. I, I didn't uh, know how enthusiastic others would be until yesterday morning. We came early and we're about to get started, and one of the ushers ran forward and said, I need to make an announcement. said, somebody came in here this morning in a red Nissan and has left the engine running. And I thought, well, that's just wonderful. Somebody's so excited to get in here, they left their car running. And then I realized I drove a red Nissan here myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm excited, but I walked out, and sure enough, it wasn't me. Uh, somebody else very excited to be there. Contrast that with the young man I met coming out of the hotel that morning as Dr. Reagan and I got ready to leave. Uh, a man came out of his room wearing a black T-shirt with a giant cross, and inside the cross was a beautiful lion, sort of like this, and I said, wow, I really like your T-shirt. Now, I figured maybe he would be there to attend our conference. So he said, well, thank you very much. I said, why are you here this weekend? bourbon. So he was not here uh, for our conference. I was a little bit disappointed at that. I never saw him over the course of the weekend, but uh, we did have a great blessing, and I pray this morning that you will be blessed. I have been already to be here with you. As a matter of fact, as I prayed and anticipated being here, the verse that always comes to mind for me is from Romans 1, I'll read 11 and 12, and I'll tell you right up front, some of the verses I share may or may not be on the screen and, and may not even be on your note pages, but uh, they are verses that the Lord has laid on my heart. So from Romans chapter 1, verse 11, Paul wrote this, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I most certainly have been encouraged already this morning. I look forward to this hour as the Lord reveals to us what he would have us to learn from his prophetic word. Join with me as we go before the throne of God. Father, how good it is to come before your throne. And I do so with great humility, but with great thanksgiving for the blessing you've bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ to be in relationship with you, and to be able to come before you. This morning we come asking you to open the eyes of our heart so that we may peer into your prophetic word, but more importantly so that we might see Jesus. We might learn to anticipate his soon return and, and be motivated to live holy lives until you do send him forth to call us home. And so, Father, this hour, as, as I open your word, as I share what you've laid on my heart, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be here, that you would touch hearts and lives, and you would open ears to hear, but that as you do, that we, through this hour of worship and through our very lives, would glorify Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. Well, before I begin this morning, I want to share with you, some of you may wonder about my role with Lamb and Lion Ministries. I am Dr. Reagan's assistant evangelist. I travel all around speaking the word that Jesus is coming soon. You've heard him deliver the message regarding the signs of the times, 
demonstrating that we are living in the season of the Lord's return. But how did I get to be here in this role? Well, 24 years ago, I was at a Christian church, much like this one, up in the cornfields of Indiana. While I was stationed at an Air Force base there, Dr. Raymond was going to be speaking for about four nights, and I told my wife, well, we'll go the first night. I'm not sure we'll go every night after that. Until we heard him speak, and I said, we're going every night. Because it was so exciting to hear the prophetic word of God, to hear from Scripture the truths revealed that Jesus is indeed coming soon. And I became very excited about that message. We became prophecy partners. I shared with my family, and many of them immediately became prophecy partners. They've been longtime supporters of the ministry, so much so that a few years later, Dr. Reagan, while he was here in Kentucky, his eastern base of operation, was able to come to my parents' home. And my brother and I shared an idea that I guess technically was my brother's, that Dr. Reagan, y'all ought to have prophecy partner conferences, gatherings in Texas to allow the prophecy partners to come and see the ministry and encourage you there on site. Well, he ended up uh, doing just that, and for a number of years we've had conferences. It grew beyond the scale of being able to fit in the ministry itself, and now we have a convention every year. More recently, we decided to begin having regional conferences, and so here in Kentucky was our very first, and I thought it was quite fitting. Well, uh, over the years, I was able to go to Israel with Dr. Reagan, along with my mom, and, who was here this morning, and then a few years later with my brother, and was very blessed. And as I got to know Dr. Reagan better and better, in the about 2006 time frame, he called me and said, I'd like you to come on staff. Well, sadly, I could not at that moment. You see, uh, as a child, my parents would tell you that as a little boy like the fellow who was up here the first service playing guitar along Chad, uh, I used to say I wanted to be a preacher, a pilot, or a politician. Well, I went in the Air Force and became a pilot, left uh, active duty, came home to Kentucky, flew with the Air National Guard, and then with UPS, and I still had a, a heart's desire to do something else. And so I began to knock on doors and, and kind of see whether or not the ministry option would open. I reached out to some spiritual mentors, but I was not given great encouragement at that moment, and the doors did not open. So I heard about this little job called state representative that was going to open up, and I thought, well, Lord, maybe you'd have me go that path, and I began to run. Uh, long story short, in a district of 43,000 people, I knew less than 25 folks when I started running, and by a miracle of God, I won. And I've been serving now for a number of years in the legislature, but I realized after a season that as important as that is, and I do believe God calls people in every sphere of human endeavor, whether it's into the military or government or academics and education, business, wherever you are, the Lord has put you to serve him, but I still felt the desire to, to speak and to share the word of God. And so I called Dr. Reagan. I said, I don't know if you would still have me. But I can get back and forth to Texas, whether it's to stuff envelopes or put stamps on, mailings, whatever you'd have me to do. He said, let me get right back to you. And he called me back and said, I want you to be my assistant. You'll lead all the pilgrimages to Israel, and you'll speak wherever you're called. And I've been doing that ever since. And so it has been a tremendous blessing. I go all around the country to speak, and I do lead our trips to Israel. As a matter of fact, I want to share with you that next year you can put yourself in this photo as many here in this congregation have. We had Suzanne and Suzette just last year, and Susan and Suzette, and we've had uh, Eddie and Cheryl. I know Terry and Janet have gone on a trip that I've been on, but this next year in Jerusalem, we're going to actually do a new trip all together. It's called the Battle for Israel pilgrimage. We're going to visit battle sites from the Old Testament and the New, from the modern era, the modern state of Israel, future battle sites, and spiritual battle sites. And this isn't a military history tour. We always focus on Jesus Christ and his soon return. We're going to talk about the providence of God demonstrated in his protection of his people, both the Jewish people throughout the ages, and you and me, as he has protected and supernaturally preserved us and continues to do so, fulfilling every one of his promises. And so May 19th through 30th will be this new and I promise you a very exciting trip. I have information back on the welcome desk if you'd like to get more specifics about that particular trip. And then next 
October, we'll take our more traditional pilgrimage, focusing on the life and ministry of Christ and, uh, and going. You know, one of the things that I will tell you, when we go to Israel, we demonstrate that although the world thinks that Israel stands alone, and I've got to tell you, uh, over the last eight years, Israel has felt very alone at times, as even their greatest ally in recent years, the United States has been very fickle at best with official policy. But as we go, we declare that we stand with Israel as Christian evangelical believers. And as I searched the internet for a uh, commentary about the role that the Jewish people continue to play in demonstrating the providence of God, I found these two quotes from a young man. The Jews continue to this day to be witnesses of God, and the very events in the Middle East are evidence that Jesus is returning soon. So said David Reagan. So, as you know, when we speak, the primary message that we share is on the soon return of Jesus Christ. We absolutely believe that anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear will recognize that the signs of the time point to the imminence of the rapture and the subsequent second return of Jesus. And the very darkness that we see descending on the world today all around us proves that we are living in the midnight hour. All of our messages point to the fact that we are in the season of the Lord's return, literally, as Dr. Reagan says, living on borrowed time. Now, I could recount a long list of statistics at the national, international, even state, local, or even down to the family level to demonstrate the rise of ungodliness in our culture. But at some level, I believe every one of us here recognizes that we have to live and raise our families in a culture that is becoming increasingly polluted. So even though we know that a trumpet may sound at any moment calling us to meet the Lord in the air, you might ask, how should we live in this midnight hour? Well, that's actually a whole other presentation, but I'll give you the, the short version of the bottom line. We need to recognize that the Lord told us the world would deteriorate. This is not a surprise to the Lord, and it should not be a surprise or a cause of fear and frustration to us. Scripture reveals and tells us that in the end times, the world will be just as in the days of Noah, where wickedness was great upon the face of the earth. No surprise. We should realize that the timing of His return will be perfect. You know, if it was up to me, the Lord would have already come. Do you ever think about that? As a matter of fact, I told you 24 years ago, I heard the message of the soon return of Christ, and I said, come on, Lord, I'm ready. And if I had set a date, he'd have already been here. But those who have become believers in Jesus Christ over the past 24 years have to be thankful that he tarried long enough for them to be saved. Aren't you glad he didn't come just prior to your salvation? You know, it's not up to me when he comes. As eager as I am for him to come, the timing of his return has been set and appointed just like his first arrival by none other than the Father himself. And therefore, we know and can trust that the timing of his return will indeed be perfect. The third R is that we need to receive. Receive every opportunity we have for testifying to our Savior and Lord in such a time as this. I tell the story of Pastor Walter Howe who a few years ago in California was standing on a sidewalk, a public sidewalk, outside an abortion clinic, holding a sign that said, God loves you and he loves your baby. He didn't speak, he just held the sign. He was arrested and sentenced to jail for 30 days. Now what would your response be to such an injustice, to the outrage of your First Amendment rights being violated and you being put in jail as a criminal? I would be angry, I would be frustrated, I would be lashing out at the great injustice. You know what Walter Howe did? He realized that God had given him a tremendous opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ in a place and to an audience that he might not have encountered any other way. And so even the young men would say, what you doing here? He said, well, I'm here because God wants me to be here. They sentenced me to jail, but I'm here to share a message with you that Jesus Christ is Lord and wants to be your Savior. You look at every opportunity you're given as a frustration, as a 
injustice or a, a putting upon of you and what you deserve, or do you see it as an opportunity? I promise you this, brothers and sisters, you're going to have many opportunities in an era of gathering darkness to share the Lord even in the midst of persecution. Will you share Jesus Christ or will you shake your fist against what is not right? How dare you put me in a position of discomfort? Well, I pray that we all testify to our Lord and Savior in such a time as this. So, other than remaining alert and encouraging other believers, Scripture gives us other insight into what we should be doing in such a time as this. I point you to Jeremiah, a prophet of doom, but a prophet who spoke to the exiles in Babylon. You know Babylon, the pagan place where the children of Israel were taken into exile. Jeremiah said this in chapter 29, verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And indeed, you and I, regardless of where the Lord's placed us, what company you work for, what city and state, what nation you live in, pray for its welfare. Serve so that in its welfare you may have welfare. Jeremiah went on to say, Mary and give your daughters and sons in marriage. Plant trees. Grow fruit. Build homes. In other words, continue to invest in the future. It brings to mind the wisdom of an old Jewish proverb that says, if you think the world is going to end tomorrow, plant a tree today. Now, I've always heard the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, right? Second best time to plant a tree? Today. And what do we mean when we say plant a tree today? Just literally plant a tree? Well, yeah, actually, plant a tree. That's a good idea. Let it grow and raise fruit. But the other thing that you and I must do as the Lord tarries is we must continue to plant and fertilize and water and prune young fruit bearers that are going to continue to rise up so that in 20 years from now, if the Lord tarries, much fruit is still being born for the kingdom of God. I see a, a young fruit berry right there on his mom's or, or someone's lap. And there are some sprinkled around the, here today, and I guarantee you, in the nursery and in the children's departments, are you watering and pruning, fertilizing, encouraging, or planting young fruit bears? That's one of the things we can be doing. So, in other words... As eager as we are for the rapture and excited as we are to herald the Lord's return, we must be about His business until He does come. So for those of us who are living in the midnight hour, the light in our lives must continue to shine brightly and ever more so as the world grows dark. One of my friends like to say, likes to say, the Lord is coming soon. Look busy. And it's not just a matter of looking busy. It's the matter of being about His work. So with that bottom line presented up front, I'll ask you this morning, what are you doing to be about the Lord's work? In other words, what are you doing to prepare for the Lord's return? I have a second picture here representing the lamp, much like the, uh, the wise virgins who kept their lamps full of oil so that their light did not go out in the midnight hour. What are you doing to prepare for the Lord's return? As you mull over that question, let's reflect back to another age when the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. Now, I have to tell you, with an onslaught of hurricanes this year in our own country and flooding around parts of our nation, I'm reminded specifically of a time when God poured out his wrath in a global flood, yet preserved a man named Noah and his family. You know, Kentucky's now home to a tremendous reconstruction of that ark. How many of you have been to the ark encounter up in northern Kentucky? If you have not, I encourage you to go. It is a wonderful testimony to the provision of God for salvation and to the truth that is revealed in the very first chapters of Genesis. It is a wonderful place. Uh, I was telling Dr. Reagan about the message I'm sharing today and Noah and the flood, and he said, oh my goodness. He said, I actually, all the flooding and the news coverage of it makes you wonder sometimes. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he was watching the news uh, out of Houston and they were interviewing a lady, and they said, uh, the reporter herself said, now I've heard that the churches down here were devastated 
And the lady said, oh, yes, but I usually get my chicken from Popeye's. Not even worried about the devastation around her in some respects. Well, I don't make light of the tragedy of local flooding and the full-size replica of Noah's Ark to make light, or I don't mention the tragedy, I should say, to make light of suffering. That's, that's not my point at all. Instead, the Lord has impressed upon me the timeliness of considering that flood and the man who built the ark. So as we anticipate the impending arrival of our blessed hope, Let's see what lessons we can draw from the life of Noah. Turn with me back to another moment in human history when the world was a very dark and evil place and when those who were declared righteous were far outnumbered by those who shook their fists at God and when judgment hung over an apathetic world. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6 and 7. I'll focus there, even as I assure you I'll go elsewhere. So beginning in verse 5, this is the scene that it is, is described for us. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. As we look around the world today, is there any doubt that the wickedness of man on the earth has once again become exceedingly great and that the Lord's own heart must be grieved? We know that God cannot countenance sin, and Scripture tells us that in the fullness of time, He will once again blot out evil men from the face of the earth. It's as if Satan himself has got our whole world in his grasp. But Genesis says in verse 6, excuse me, verse 8 of chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now speaking of Noah, I will tell you, I looked online, you like to use some artwork and some other graphics at times, but so I looked for a portrait or painting of that great patriarch. But when I did an internet search for an older godly patriarch who spent a lot of time on the water with his family, this is the picture that kept popping up. Uh, there on the left, Bill Robertson, yet another great exemplar from a great state of Louisiana. But Phil aside, what did Noah do? What did he do to find favor in the eyes of the Lord? What great character trait caused the Lord to declare Noah as righteous and blameless in his time? Was he somehow a truly sinless man long before Christ manifested that singular characteristic? No, we know that Noah was not without sin. The first key to understanding his special standing is provided in the very same verse where God declares him blameless. It says in verse 8, or excuse me, it declares there where he said he's blameless that Noah walked with God. That is verse 9. The same phrase is used in chapter 5 of Genesis to describe another man named Enoch who walked with God until the Lord took him. So in this context, Enoch and Noah were men who were in an ongoing communion with God. They lived in such a close and dynamic relationship with the Almighty that they were credited with righteousness. Only ten generations later, the Lord would call Abram to leave his idol-worshiping family and go to a land he would show him. Genesis 15.6 says simply, Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. In Romans 4.3, by the way, Paul records that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that not on the count of any work that he did. If he had worked and earned, he would not have to have been credited with righteousness. So in that regard, God's plan of salvation is demonstrated in the lives of these ancient men. Belief in God and trust in His provision for salvation is credited as righteousness. We know that Christ alone is the vehicle for our deliverance from sin, and only as we believe Him and put our faith in Him are we saved. Now, having said that, let me give you a little aside on this uh, prepositional context I'm talking about this morning. You see, many contemporary Christians like to emphasize what God has done to them, or what He is doing in them. And I'll confess, if you go to a conference or any time a pastor is 
is preaching, we want to focus to a degree on how God wants to work on your mind and in your life and through your living testimony. But hear me very clearly, the only basis for your salvation is what God has done for you. It is only because of Jesus and His finished work on the cross of Calvary that you are adopted into the family of God and destined to spend eternity with Him. In other words, that you are credited with righteousness. So, the second lesson we can draw from Noah is that because of his relationship with God, because he walked with Him, the Lord revealed His plan of judgment, a plan that had destruction and wrath, but also contained great hope for salvation. The surety of that revelation would have been lost on anyone lacking a relationship with the Almighty. We know from Scripture that pagan kings at times had visions and dreamed dreams, but it required a man of God, someone communing with the Lord and endowed with the Holy Spirit to actually interpret those dreams and visions. It likewise takes the presence of the Holy Spirit in a child of God today for you to discern meaning from revelation. I'll come back to that. It actually, though, does mean that you should discern meaning from revelation, meaning God's prophetic word. Thirdly, Noah demonstrates that real faith leads to action. James captured this truth most succinctly. He said, faith without works is dead. Noah did not merely assent intellectually to the warning and assurance that God had given and the instruction, hmm, that sounds very good, yes, well, what a... No, he didn't just build a small yacht for his own family to get away from the coming deluge. Instead, he ordered his entire life around obedience to all that God had commanded him. Which brings me to number four on my list there. In other words, God gave Noah the blessing of a divine calling and a significant work to, to accomplish. Imagine the immensity of his task. Building a boat that would preserve not only his family, but representatives of the entire animal kingdom through a global deluge. Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis estimates that it took him 50 to 75 years. We don't know for sure. And oh, by the way, Noah was about 400 years old when he started his work. So those of you all who are getting a little more seasoned and say, oh, I couldn't, mm-mm, you could do that. The Lord calls you, no age. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. Do you ever think about that? Find the word retirement in there. People say, I don't see the word rapture. I don't see the word retirement. Rapture is in the Bible, but not retirement. I absolutely believe that the Lord did provide him with supernatural ability. Exodus 35, 31 says that the Spirit of God filled Bezalel so he could fashion the Ark of the Covenant. It gave him special giftedness in artistry and in craftsmanship to work with wood and with metal. He also provided his Holy Spirit for the men who would build his temple, or excuse me, his tabernacle in that day and age, to his exact specifications. So how much more would he not fill the man who he called to build this incredible ark. So once again, realize that if the Lord calls you at any age to a task, he will equip you to fulfill it. All that he requires of you is your willingness and your obedience. And so with Noah, at the end of chapter 6, verse 22 simply says this, Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. That brings us to number five. Based on God's favor, his ongoing walk with the Lord, and his faithful accomplishment of the task God gave him, Noah was given the promise of a covenant. See, God alone communicated the idea of the ark, motivated specifications for its construction, enabled Noah to accomplish the task, and motivated representative animal pairs to join him in the ark. In other words, the very means of Noah's salvation originated with God and was made possible by God alone. So, while we might identify with Noah as a worthy model to emulate, the credit for even his accomplishment goes still to God alone. Now, we don't know if Noah finished his, finished his ark just in time. That's the way a lot of modern manufacturers schedule their logistics, or if he completed it and awaited further instructions. But once the ark was completed, 
and God provided those final instructions, Noah and his family did not have long to wait. Genesis in chapter 7 records that he had seven days to load the ark. Seven very busy days to load and bid down all the mating animal pairs from the entire kingdom. Seven days full of obedient activity before judgment fell on the earth. And once again, in chapter 7, verse 5, it simply records, thus Noah did according to all that the Lord, that Yahweh had commanded him. In other words, he was busy about the Lord's work. But we know that Noah was doing something else, even as he was busy obeying everything God had commanded him. You see, 2 Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Here's what Peter records. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In other words, even as he was building the ark and loading it as the Lord commanded, he was testifying to the revelation of God and calling people to repentance. I believe there are two aspects of Noah's preaching that we should consider. First, the very actions he took demonstrated faithfulness to Almighty God. Can you imagine the folks around him? What's that guy doing? What in the world are you building? Man, what are you doing with that giant monstrosity there? Noah would have to tell him, well, the Lord told me to build a giant ark. Really? Yeah, really. And that's what I am doing. The very actions that Noah demonstrated showed his faithfulness to God and was a testimony. But the second attribute of preaching is sharing good news, or sharing news. I, don't, I won't say good news. Why do I say that? Well, we refer to the message of Jesus Christ as the gospel because it is good news to those who accept it, right? Would you ever consider that the gospel message is also very bad news to those who reject the offer of salvation? Because John 3.33 tells us that the wrath of God abides on anyone who rejects his offer of salvation. Therefore, even the message that there is a God who offers salvation contains an element of absolute foreboding and devastation. Because those who don't accept it have the wrath of God abiding on them. Noah's preaching was not only directed at his contemporaries who very sadly and uniformly rejected his twofold warning of destruction and message of hope, but also to his descendants, which is why his life testimony and his example resonates down through the centuries even to us here today, if we'll listen. Step back from the story of Noah and the ark and the, the cute little pictures that we put in children's nurseries and the animals that we make into stuffed animals. And it's very cute and pretty and very nice. And think about Noah's actions, his relationship with God, and the world in which he lived. We know that it was filled, this world, with unrighteousness. The wickedness of mankind was so great that God's own heart was grieved to the point that he was sorry he had made man on the earth. Now, I don't believe there's any contradiction in that statement with the reality that God loves the world. How many parents, in a moment of honest candor, would admit complete love but true grief of heart with the behavior and sometimes the rejection of their own children? No. This statement in Genesis is meant to convey to us the depth of grief our sin causes our holy God. So as you look around the world today, can you think that God's attitude toward the rebellion and wickedness on display would be any different? There can be no doubting His love. He did send His own Son to offer salvation to a lost and dying world even as it rejected Him but realize that the heart of God is once again and always grieved by sin. I could recount example after example of our own nation's depravity and of man's increasing ungodliness. Within our own nation, founded on godly principles, on Christian principles specifically, and declaring itself a nation under God, the rush toward Gomorrah has only accelerated in recent years. You want me to give you an example? What is the sign of covenant God gave to Noah that he would never again destroy the, the world in a flood? The rainbow. 
But if you see a rainbow on a flag today, what does it represent to you? God's promise? God's goodness? God's covenant? No. If you see a rainbow flag, that very symbol has been appropriated to represent abomination and ungodliness. You ever think about that? And in our own nation, 24 years ago, I would never have dreamed we would embrace the kind of immorality and ungodliness that is now not just condoned and tolerated, but embraced and celebrated at every level. And that's just one example among many. I have a whole presentation if you want to get into details. Who would have dreamed how fast and how far our own nation would have fallen? But are we not called to also preach righteousness both through our words and through our actions? Unless we complain, well, the, the world's just not listening to us. They're not heeding our warning or embracing our Savior. Does that lessen our responsibility? No, not in the least. Nobody responded to Noah's preaching either. Nor should the gathering gloom dampen our lamps. Instead, they should shine all the brighter in the growing darkness. That is why the Lord said Himself that the world would deteriorate dramatically before His return. He said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Not only will His coming take an unbelieving world by surprise, but it will come at a time when the wickedness of man is once again great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And my brothers and sisters, we are living in just such a time as that. So having established that, that we have a great similarity between Noah's credit of righteousness and our own and the wickedness of Noah's world and our own, what other lessons can we derive from this hero of the faith? Well, the writer of Hebrews said this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. Condemned the world? Well, this passage is best understood in light of Peter's reference to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. I've already read that to you. That is because Noah was not a judge or the condemner of the ancient world any more than you or I should be the judge or should assume the role, I should say, of judge or condemner. Sure, we can and must discern ungodliness and call it for what it is, but only God is the righteous judge. No, instead, Peter puts Noah's role in perspective. Even as he was building a tremendous boat, he was preaching righteousness. Now, we may wonder about the wisdom that is often attributed to St. Francis. You know what he said? Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. I don't know what method of preaching Noah used. I do believe that even as we live our testimony, we have to communicate with words the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He came that the world may have salvation from their sins. That takes words, not just a life lived in a godly manner. But anyway, regarding Noah, we don't know the nature of his preaching, but the character of God does dictate that had any individual repented and demonstrated obedient faith, they too would have been credited with righteousness and would have been on the ark. How do I know that? Well, time and time again, it's demonstrated in the Scripture. Do you remember the message that Noah was sent to deliver to Nineveh? You know Nineveh, that pagan ungodly, sinful place. As a matter of fact, Jonah said, Nineveh, they don't deserve your message of hope and, and repentance. They deserve what they're going to get. And so he ran the other way. Well, we all know how that worked out for him. So finally and grudgingly, Jonah preached a message to Nineveh. You know what his message was? Y'all going to die. It wasn't a message of hope. It was a very blunt message of wrath. But how did Nineveh respond? Nineveh, recognizing that the wrath of God hung over them, repented in sackcloth and ashes, and for a season turned from their wicked ways. And the Lord God relented of the wrath He had intended for Nineveh for a season. Jonah himself was actually disappointed. You know, they didn't deserve your mercy. Well, who does? Did you? Did you? I didn't. And yet the Lord is merciful. 
And so the message that the world does not deserve is the same message that I did not deserve, and that is that Jesus has come to save the lost. And the Lord God gave his only son to that end. Well, Matthew Henry actually offers some additional insights. My folks gave me a set of Matthew Henry commentaries. He's from several hundred years ago, but great insight to this day. He says that being warned, Noah served and did what God commanded. He condemned the world, not in a judgmental act of his own will, but by the contrast of his faithful life. We might call it and say he convicted the world. What I mean by that is Noah, through a demonstration of his holy reverence and fear, contrasted the world's security and vain confidence. Through his believing faith, he contrasted their scoffing disbelief. And by virtue of his complete obedience, he contrasted their contempt and rebellion. Billy Graham says it this way. He said, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the butter. Well, Noah demonstrated that a godly example will either turn sinners to repentant conversion or condemn them in their rejection. In that regard, Matthew Henry says the best way for the people of God to condemn, or we might use the word convict, the wicked, is not by harsh and criticizing language, but by a holy example in conversation. A holy example in engagement through conversation. Let me read the rest of the verse from Hebrews, because I left it off in the middle. The rest of verse 7 in chapter 11 says that Noah became an heir to the righteousness which is according to faith. In other words, he didn't earn it. He became an heir, not by means of his own inherent righteousness. You see, no matter how exemplary, Noah's crediting was not due to his own actions. So even this Old Testament exemplar of faithfulness was an heir to righteousness righteousness. It was given down to him from someone whose right it was to give, just like you and me. Now, since we know that God does not wish any to perish, even his apparent slowness in executing his judgment then and today is a demonstration of his patience and his desire that all would come to repentance. For that reason, I absolutely do believe that if anyone repented of their wickedness and entered into a relationship with God, marked by obedience, they would have been credited with righteousness and they too would have been on the ark. Just as the Lord relented for a season of the judgment that would have fallen on Nineveh. So, let me give you another reason I'm convinced Noah did not overstep his role as a preacher of righteousness from Scripture. Noah did not elevate himself to pick and choose who would be saved or even when the opportunity for salvation would cease. How do I know that? Genesis chapter 7, verse 16 says, the Lord closed the door to the ark. So even that final act of sealing the fate of those who rejected the offer of salvation was left to God alone. In our eagerness to realize our salvation, in our enthusiasm for the rapture, and the blessedness of being with the Lord, in our own hearts and minds, we cannot close the door on the salvation of others who God in His patience still intends to save. Only God can, should, and will close that door. So I could tell you once again about the five virgins. You know, the wise ones went in to the feast with the bridegroom when he came. The foolish ones had to run and hurry to buy oil. And when they came back, the bridegroom, his bride, and their invited guests had already gone in. And they found that the door was shut. Not by the bride. By the bridegroom. Once again, Peter captures both the patience of God and the symbolic aspect of Noah's salvation through the waters of the flood in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I can tell you, much has been made about the ark. As an engineer and an aspiring carpenter myself, I'm fascinated with the dimensions and the construction of such a tremendous vessel. Oceanographers tell us that the design of the ark was so perfect that it would be stable in even the most violent of seas. Theologians like to tell about the ark and liken it to its writing on the waters to a symbolic cleansing of baptism. They point to God's provision of deliverance from judgment to Christ serving as the holy vessel for our redemption. Let me just tell you, today, as we discern the world in which we live and its condition, as we study about and yearn for the culmination of history and the soon return of Jesus Christ, as we imagine the unbelievable, incredible wonders that await us and anticipate them, we must put first things first and ensure that we are wholly devoted to the Lord. Our relationship with Him is more important even than our understanding of prophetic mysteries or signs of the times. How do I know that? I know that because discernment was not always given, even to the ancient prophets. Have you ever thought about that? Daniel recorded many visions. He didn't understand them all. As a matter of fact, one time he was recording, he said, I don't even understand what I'm writing. Lord, I don't understand. And God said, go your way, Daniel. It's not for you to understand. But in the end of times, people will understand. That's you and me. But more important than the discernment you should have as you read God's Word and His prophetic revelation is your relationship with Him. Our daily walk with Christ as our Savior and the unchallenged Lord of our lives must come before all else. And that will lead to even greater discernment and understanding. So review with me the main stair steps of Noah's experience of faith. First, he found favor with God. He was credited as righteous and blameless because he walked with God. Owing to this communion that he had, God revealed his plan of judgment. A plan that had an element of wrath for those who rejected him, but also a plan of salvation. Noah demonstrates that real faith leads to action and obedience. Noah was given a calling and a work, something to do, not just something to be. He was given a work to accomplish. And he was commissioned and equipped by God himself for this very task. And then Noah was given the promise of a covenant. I know in your notes one of those does not show up as a line, but uh, there was a, a jump on the, uh, the page. Those are the five points I made in that regard. As Noah waited for salvation, in other words, once the ark was complete, Noah was ready to get on board. He probably already was on board, waiting for what the Lord had foretold. The Lord provided final instructions for preserving a remnant of life. Once again, Noah acted with complete obedience, and he waited upon the Lord. He did not presume to decide when the fate of the world was sealed. In other words, in the words of George W. Bush, he was not the decider. He waited and let the Lord God decide when the door should be shut. So what does all this mean to us in 2017? Let me ask you this morning, do you live expectantly? Scripture records that when Christ came the first time, there were only two whose names were worthy of being included in the account as being expectant, eager, and anticipating the Lord's Messiah. Because of their relationship with God, the Holy Spirit had revealed to them that they would see His Messiah. They were Simeon and Anna. I love this picture. It's a artist's depiction of Simeon as an old man holding the very promise of God. A fulfillment of the promise that he had been given that he would see the Lord's Messiah. Do you live expectantly? Are you looking for the Lord's Messiah? At a, a service like this, at a conference like we had this weekend, it's easy to get a resounding and confident, yes, and I'm sure that many of you are, but some of you that came here today and that came this weekend probably don't realize 
all that it means to expect the Lord's return at any moment. So what about this? Do you open God's Word and expect Him to reveal Himself to you? When you bow in prayer, do you expect Him to commune with you? Not so much dispensing every one of your desires and your perceived needs, but speaking to your heart and making your thoughts and your desires mirror His own. And even when it comes to your desire for Christ's return, do you expect Him to increase your faith as you wait for the Father to declare it is time? You know, as I focused on the signs of the times alerting us to Jesus' soon return, I do hope this morning and ongoingly that I either spark or increase a keen interest in the timing of His coming. You may be eager for that event, or you, and confident, by the way, in your place on the, the ark of salvation, or you may just be interested in all the commotion. What's all this about? What are you all, what are you all talking about? like the people of Noah's day who came to see that giant thing he was building. But I'm here to proclaim two truths this morning. If you do not already know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are not yet on the ark. You could be swept away into a horrific eternity at any moment. As David Reagan had said, you are only one heartbeat away from damnation. One heartbeat. And if you are secure in your salvation, confident that when the Lord calls, you will rise immediately to Him, then I urge you to live expectantly. As you reflect on my message this morning and ongoing about things to come, about Noah's life, remember that the book of Revelation actually opens with a blessing we should all aspire to attain. It said, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. What does it mean to heed? Your translation may have that word as keep or obey. But looking back to Noah and Abraham, how did they heed? The first most important thing is that they would believe. That they would believe the Lord God and His prophetic word. So if you want to heed the things that are in Revelation, believe it. And believe in the one who declared what will come, and then obey Him. Paul wrote to the third church in Thessalonica, and by the way, before I read that text, let me just tell you, I am grateful, and you are blessed, to have a man of God who shares the prophetic Word of God. Because there are many, in Terry Cooper, there are many churches where I ask the pastor, hey, are you going to talk about prophecy? When are we going to get the prophecy? You want me to share? Well, you know, I don't know if I want to get into that right now. Really, why not? Well, that's kind of controversial. And we got a lot of other stuff. We need to lay a whole lot of groundwork before we can get to anything about prophecy. Well, you've been laying groundwork for years. When do you think you'll get there? Well, I don't know, but a long time from now, probably, maybe. We'll see. You know what? When Paul went to the church in Thessalonica, he was there for a matter of weeks. What, what message did he share with them? We know that he shared the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you turn to the pages of Acts and read every sermon delivered in Acts, what was that message? Jesus Christ died, was buried, and is raised again. Put your faith in him and you will be saved. Jesus Christ died, buried, resurrected. That's the message of the gospel. Put your faith in him. So we know Paul shared that message. But in a matter of two or three weeks, he had already talked about the glorious return of Jesus Christ, which is why the Thessalonians were writing him, hey, Paul, we remember you saying about this, but what exactly did you mean about that with Jesus' return? And Paul would write these letters, First and Second Thessalonians. It didn't take him years and years to talk about the prophetic Word of God. It was part of the very foundation that he laid for their faith. So, Here's what he responded to one of their inquiries in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and 6. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. You know, it will indeed grow darkest just before the Lord once again declares, let there be light, and breaks from the heavens in radiant splendor. 
Regarding the age-old battle between darkness and light, I'll repeat Paul's admonition that we should also heed. From Romans, the church in Rome, he wrote this, chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken for sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. When Noah was called, he did not know how much time he had, only that it would be enough. We don't know how much time we have, only that it will be enough. And that when the Father says, it's time, go and get your bride, he will close the door. And so until that day, let's be preachers of righteousness. Are you ready? Have you kept oil in your lamp? Here's how the parable of the ten virgins ends. It says, but at midnight, at the hour of greatest darkness, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom! Realizing that his time was drawing near, Paul wrote to Timothy and said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, or excuse me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? You get up in the morning saying, this could be the day. This could be the day. Praise the Lord. Well, Three times in Revelation 22, Jesus tells us that he is coming quickly. On the third time, he added this promise, or one of them he said in verse 7 of chapter 22, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. John was so overwhelmed that he immediately fell down to worship. In the verses to follow, he was specifically told not to seal up the words of prophecy contained in Revelation. And why? Because the time was near. Brothers and sisters, the time of Jesus' return is nearer now than it was when I began this message. Are you ready? Are you on the ark of salvation? If so, you can join with the chorus of saints around the world who echo John's closing prayer. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you are not, don't wait. Another day, another hour, or another heartbeat. Because you may not have any of them. Choose this day, this hour, this moment to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. To get on the ark of salvation that He has provided. And then to join with those of us who are already on board and praising Him and crying out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father God, I'm grateful for this morning for the opportunity You've given me to open Your Word and to share the good and glorious news that Jesus is coming soon and to share the message that for those that don't already know Him, the wrath of God does abide and will soon fall. Father, I pray that there are those here who don't know Jesus as their Savior. They will not wait another hour, another minute, another heartbeat to say, I claim Christ as my Savior, and I want to get on that ark, and I want to look forward to His soon return. For those of us who are already waiting patiently, I pray that we will be about your work as you have called us to do, that we will be preaching righteousness, faithful to the end, until you tell your son, go and get your bride. Father, we look forward to that day. We praise you for our blessed hope, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Um, do you believe in the soon return of Jesus Christ? Go ahead, answer that question. Do you believe in the soon return of Jesus Christ? The second question 
is much, much more important. Are you prepared for the return of Jesus Christ? You see, it's not enough just to believe that he's coming. There are many who believe he's returning someday, and yet their lives are not prepared. Today, as we have this time of invitation, search your heart and see. Is, the, is God calling you to preparedness? Is God calling you maybe to a relationship with him for the first time? The invitation is open today as we stand and as we sing.